I can understand the secrecy when it comes to new products and new designs. But yeah, when it comes to security, communication is really important. And Apple could really learn something from Microsoft. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about Mac computers and about, frankly, why they're the best. They're sleek, they're fast, they can run four video games. And like my friend the internet once said, Macs don't get viruses. Obviously, we're having a bit of fun here. But our show today is about Mac and Mac security. It's something we haven't really covered at all on Lock and Code, and we thought, well, why is that? We can't deny that Mac machines are now firmly situated in most workplaces. This show, this podcast, is at least partly made on a Mac computer. Nor can we deny that there are real cyber threats out there that affect Macintosh computers. I mean, our own research at Malwarebytes showed that the overall volume of Mac threats increased by more than 400% just a couple of years ago. And that's just talking about desktop and laptop machines. As we discussed in one of our recent episodes about ExpressVPN and one of its executives' past ties to something called Project Raven, there is an entire cottage industry out there for discovering and exploiting vulnerabilities in Apple's iOS mobile operating system. So today, we're going to learn a lot more about Macs and Mac security, what the machines get right what they are lacking in, and what Apple could learn from its counterparts. And whether that whole Macs don't get viruses folktale ever turned out to be true. For this, we're speaking to our resident Mac expert, Thomas Reed, director of Mac and mobile at Malwarebytes, and a Mac fan since 1984. Thomas, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you for asking that. You are the first guest who has ever asked how I'm doing. <laughs> so congratulations. You are you are now our favorite guest. That's a very esteemed position to be in. <laughs> Don't mess it up. But in all fun and, and in all seriousness here, let's get right into it. Like I said at the top of the show, we're trying to discuss why are Macs the best? And I'm just going to put that question to you. Why are Macintosh computers the best? Personally, I just find the ease of use to be the big selling point. You know, they're very, very easy to use. They're very friendly. Everything tends to be very consistent. Consistency is a big thing with Apple across all of their various systems and devices. And that really, that's an important thing for me. I don't want to be worrying about, you know, the minutia of controlling the system and, you know, all these different settings and this and that. I just want to use the machine. I do want that power to be there when I want it, but I don't always want to be messing with it. On that ease of use thing, I also remember this has been their messaging for a really long time. I remember the iMac right? There was a commercial about like, oh, three steps to connect to the internet. And I think it was just like, turn on your computer and, and plug in your ethernet cable. And that was it. Like you're connected to the internet. And that was like a, that was like a, hey, there's no step three. Um, <laughs> there's surprise. no step three. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I'm pretty sure it was Jeff Goldblum who did the voice of the commercial, which is, you know, when you're a celebrity, take a couple tens of thousands of dollars for 30 seconds ads and, uh, you know, help pay for your kid's college, I guess. But we're going down the wrong path here. I wanted to ask about, about like you said, 
past that ease of use issue, you said you like to you like to be able to get more control of the machine when you need it. When would you need something like that? Yeah. So where you really want some of that power and control is, you know, when we're, you're doing something like writing a piece of software or maybe trying to do something in the Unix shell, for example, and those kinds of activities, you know, any kind of automation or software development or anything along those lines, that's where you really need to have that power and that flexibility. And Macs get criticized sometimes by people who say, oh, they don't have that much power. They're not that flexible, but it's it's really not true. I mean, they're, you know, essentially these days they're built on Unix and you've got the full power of the command line and you've got, you know, you can use any compiler that, that you can run on a Unix machine. So there's a lot of power there. For folks who may not know about Unix, one, what is it? And two, why is it important that, that Mac machines are built on it? Yeah, so Unix is a very old system. It was developed, I can't tell you exactly when, but it was long, long ago, before my time, actually. And it was really designed to be run on multi-user systems. So, you know, you'd go and you'd sit down at a, what you'd call a dumb terminal. It really wasn't a computer. It was just a keyboard and a screen. And it would be connected to the mainframe that was running a, a Unix system. And you would log in and, you know, run all kinds of commands through the command line. And that was really the power. You know, it was multi-user. It could run on a very powerful machine. And yet, you know, lots of different people have accounts on it safely. In the early days of Unix, it wasn't necessarily secure, but you know, modern Unix is pretty secure. So this sort of gives Max a really good solid foundation, you know, of, of a system that has been tried and true for decades and that has uh, seen numerous improvements, lots of security improvements, lots of usability improvements over many, many years. So it's, it's a very powerful base on which to build your system. I thought it was interesting how you mentioned that it seems like it was one of the first multi-user systems. Was that a big deal? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you know, because back, back in the day when, when these systems were being built, not everybody could afford a computer. You know, when I when I was a kid, I was lucky enough that my dad was a, an engineer and we always had computers in the house. But a lot of people, you know, they couldn't afford computers. You know, the average person just absolutely wouldn't have one in their house at that time. And so if you wanted to use a computer, it was best if you could go and have multiple people all using the same powerful computer all at the same time. And so that's really what it was built for. And I can remember back in my college days going into computer labs where it was just you know rows of these dumb terminals that were all connected to the same mainframe. And there could be dozens of people in the room all connected to the same computer and all using it simultaneously. That's super cool. Like I never had that experience, you know, and I'm like, oh, no way. That's great. 
we were talking a little bit about, you know, how Unix is very stable years after, you know, it's, it's been decades. It's become a stable foundation. I wanted to steer into talking about Mac security, right? What, what do Macs get right when it comes to having a secure system? So I think one of the really big things that, that Macs do right is Apple has really made some, some big improvements in recent years to lock down certain parts of the system. So at this point, with the current version, last several major versions of macOS, the system itself, all of the system files reside on a read-only signed system volume. So not only is it read-only so you can't you know, make any changes to it. But if you were to change it, if you were to make it a read-write volume, which is possible if, you know, if you know what you're doing, uh, you still can't make changes because then you'll break the, you know, the signature, you know, it's, it's cryptographically signed so that the system can tell if it has been modified. So that that's really powerful and it reduces the opportunities that malware has to get established on the system. Now, that's not to say that it's it entirely eliminates them. It certainly does not. There are plenty of ways that you can really easily infect a Mac, but you can't compromise the system itself, not without potentially physical access and, and a bit of time. The other thing that I think they really get right in terms of security is just, you know, as we mentioned, they're easy to use. And part of that is simplicity. And in my opinion, complexity is the enemy of security. If you've got a really complex user interface, if you've got all these different things that don't quite fit together well, that's a lot of edges and corners and places that things can hide or, you know, that, that where you can have attack surfaces exposed. So the more simplistic design of macOS in some ways can be a benefit to security as well. I love that thing you said about complexity being the enemy of security. It's not the first time I've heard that. I have spoken to quite a few people uh, when I've written about uh, about end-to-end encryption, right? And that same idea has been introduced, that complexity can harm encryption and it's used in a very different sense where like there are a lot of efforts in governments across across the world to introduce a way for another recipient to read an end-to-end encrypted message or piece of data. And so what that means is that, you know, it's not readable just by the one recipient who received it and the one who sent it. It's now readable by a third party, right? And that's introducing a complexity that didn't exist before. And that complexity is the enemy of security. And I think it's such a simple way to understand it. I think it's really powerful. I wanted to move and understand what are some of the things, though, that Apple and and Mac computers, that they could take a lesson from in their counterparts? What, What don't they get right? What could they do better when it comes to security? Yeah, absolutely. And those things do exist. I think the one that is top of mind for me right now is patching. So, you know, on on Windows, you know, you've got Patch Tuesday. You know, when patches are coming out, Microsoft communicates what they're patching when fairly well. I don't know, maybe not perfectly, but there's at least some communication there. In the case of Apple, there's really nothing. You you don't know when the patches are coming, what's going to be in them. 
and they don't really tell you what's being fixed where. And so there's a really good example for that that actually just occurred very recently. So there's this new malware that's based in China, and it was discovered by Google's threat analysis group. And they found that this malware was being distributed through compromised websites, and it was using two different vulnerabilities in macOS to get the malware installed on targeted systems without any user interaction at all. So that's obviously bad. (laughs) What's worse, though, is that one of the two vulnerabilities was known to Apple, and it was fixed in what was at the time the current version of macOS, which was Big Sur. And this was back in early February of this year. And so, you know, Apple puts out the release notes. Interestingly enough, if you go back and look, given that we know about this vulnerability now, it was only just added to the Big Sur release notes in September after Apple became aware of this malware. More suspicious, though, they just patched that same vulnerability in macOS Catalina in September. So for seven months, Apple knew about the bug. They did not patch Catalina, and Catalina was left completely vulnerable to this vulnerability. And that's one example. Joshua Long at this year's Objective by the Sea Mac Security Conference presented a whole bunch of information on other vulnerabilities that he tracked and figured out had not been fixed in all vulnerable systems. So the fact that Apple's not communicating this is really just terrible and it leaves it leaves people vulnerable. Do we have any idea why they're this bad at this? I really don't know. I think there's got to be something to do with their internal processes. And of course, Apple has this history of being very secretive. They really don't communicate anything really Mm -hmm. until it's launch day. They'll say when one of their events is happening, but not what they're going to be talking about. So those two things are together, just don't make a good combination, you know, problems with the the process and problems with communication. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way I had heard Apple described from anyone who's who's gotten an inside look, there's that that phrase like the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, but that's used in a way to be like, no, Apple thinks that's good. Like it's secretive enough that coworkers don't know what coworkers are doing, right? Because they're on different teams. And so it's like, well, I'm not gonna tell you about the next Apple Watch. That's not your job. It is and it has been extraordinarily secretive for years. Sometimes you see that kind of secrecy from a company and then they relent a little bit. Even, you know, after Steve Jobs' death, it's stayed an extremely secretive company, which is rare. That's it. I haven't seen that from anyone else, actually, I think, ever. I can understand the secrecy when it comes to, you know, new products and new, you know, new designs. But yeah, when it comes to security, communication is really important. And Apple could really learn something from Microsoft in that regard. Yeah. Something I was personally curious about, and we mentioned it near the top there, about Apple's focus on ease of use. You hear a lot of folks say, oh, they love Apple products because it just works, right? This kind of usability, like you take it out of the box and it just works. I wonder how has that 
approach, how has it impacted device security in any way? Has it has it compromised it? Has it enhanced it? Has it had any effect? I just wonder that because in my opinion, right, they have been increasingly pushing the user out, I think, of the machine, out of the machine, out of understanding, out of having to understand how the machine works. Little things. Something that really surprised me is starting in a, a couple of OSs before our current OS, I remember that the default was that they removed the hard drive icon on your desktop. And I thought that was that was so weird to me. I was like, why would you... <laughs> that one bugged me for years. I hate that. I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, there's little things like that. Um, there's also, right, they had that commercial a while ago where, like, the parent was asking a kid, like, oh, can you get the computer? And the kid was like, what's a computer? And it's like, okay, we're not, <laughs> we're not there yet. <laughs> and so my question here is, has that focus, has that, uh, has that approach, how has that affected device security, if at all? So I think that it's mixed. I think there is some benefit there. So, you know, part of part of this goes back again to the simplicity. You know, if it's really simple to set up and there are sensible defaults on things, like for example, the file vault encryption that encrypts your your whole hard drive, that's on by default. So you'd have to actually go out of your way to turn off that kind of security setting. And there are a number of other security settings that are like that. They're just on by default. You don't get any say when you're setting up your device. You're not even asked anymore. It's just done for you. And that's really very powerful for less techie users. You know, people who aren't really keeping up with all this stuff, aren't following security trends and what Apple's doing and all this kind of stuff. They don't want to know all this stuff. They just want to set it up and start using it. And when the device is in a pretty secure state by default, that's good. Unfortunately, I think some of the simplicity can also be a little bit of a hindrance at times because people, they are kind of encouraged not to dig into the details. And sometimes digging into the details is how you learn how to be more secure. Has that ever impacted you or or folks that you know, security researchers on Mac? Has it has it impacted you in a way where you're like an OS comes out and you're like, ah, how do I get in this? Why have they made this one thing harder than before? Yeah, you know, as somebody who tests malware for at least part of my job, <laughs> one of my biggest frustrations these days is how hard Apple makes it to actually run some of these malware samples. You know, it's Apple, you know, the, the, the Mac has its own sort of anti-malware defenses built in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so the latest malware that's in the news, Apple's going to know about it. They're going to add it to their static rules that are in the system. And suddenly, you know, you're a security researcher trying to run this on a Mac to see what it does, what kind of files it drops, what communications it makes but it won't run anymore because the OS won't let it. So that's that's frustrating. And and of course, you know, that's only a small portion of the actual malware that's out there, but it's the malware that gets the headlines. So it's, you know, the, that's the malware that you really want to test and play with and then you end up sometimes not being able to very easily. 
what happens in a case like that? Do you, I know very little about malware analysis. The most I could tell you is like, do you run a virtual machine, right? And then that's, after that, if you said anything else, I'm doomed, right? But how do you overcome something like that? Yeah, so really you have to go in and you have to disable a bunch of those on by default security settings. There's one in particular called system integrity protection that protects a lot of the parts of your system against modification, among other things. And if you turn that off, then that can help you get around some of those anti-malware protections and actually run malware on a test machine, which isn't something that the average user is going to do. It's, <laughs> But it's something that we have to do sometimes. And fortunately, Apple makes it you know, I guess fortunately for the average user, Apple makes it difficult to turn these settings off. You really have to know exactly what you're doing and you have to boot into a special environment. So you really have to be physically in front of the machine with your hands on it in order to do this. It's not something you could do remotely. That's pretty good to know. I think it's interesting that we've been talking a lot about malware to be tested on Mac machines, malware that is already being recognized by Macintosh computers. And we're stating it as just a, a state of fact when many years ago, people just used to say Macs don't get viruses. Is there truth to that? Well, we just proved no. But but help me understand the history there. Help me understand where that came from and, and where we're at today with with that, uh, you know, I call it the top, uh, a folktale it does kind of feel like that to me now. Yeah, it really is. And I think it all stemmed in part, at least, from that old Apple ad, one of those get a Mac ads with the guy saying, "I'm a hi, I'm a Mac, and the guy saying, hi, I'm a PC. And there was one infamous one where the PC was saying, you know, oh, I'm, I'm sick, you know, don't get close to me. And, and the Mac is saying, oh, well, it's okay, I can't catch you know, Windows viruses. And so, of course, it, you know, that was just echoing that, that sentiment that Macs don't get viruses. And it's, you know, it really became very pervasive, but it's actually never been true. <laughs> so if, if we go back and look at the history, so I've been a Mac user since 1984. So I've seen a lot of the history and in the, the very early days, there was plenty of malware out there for Macs. In fact, contrary to popular belief, the first truly widespread virus was actually not one that infected any kind of Windows or DOS machine. It was the Elk Cloner virus that infected Apple II computers. And so Apple has really been affected by malware for a very, very long time. And when Apple made the transition from the old Mac system, so, you know, they started with system one and they went up through system nine. That was what we call the classic system. Yeah. When they made that transition to OS 10, which was their Unix-based system, the entire architecture changed and all that old malware was instantly just dead in the water. It could not infect, you know, a Mac OS 10 machine. And that is also partly where this Macs don't get viruses idea came from is because all that malware sort of just died instantly. 
but it didn't stay gone. So it didn't take very long. It was just a few years after Mac OS X was released before malware for Mac OS X started appearing. And it's been out there all this time. It's really, except for that, you know, couple of years there between when, you know, Mac OS X was first released and then the first malware, that's really the only time that Macs have truly been virus free or malware free, I should say. So all any company has to do is just change everything about their operating system. <laughs> yes, throw everything in the garbage and create something brand new. <laughs> I, <laughs> and then you get a couple years. <laughs> you're right, and then you just got to do it again. That first virus you mentioned that affected Apple to computers, what did it do? Yeah, so that was back in the day when viruses were were still kind of experimental and really they were pranks or proof of concepts at that time. And Elk Cloner was absolutely a prank. So this one and, and it was never meant to spread as far as it did. But what it would do is it would get onto a disk. You put the disk into your Apple II computer and it would copy itself into the computer. It would stay dormant for a while, and it was part of a game. And so when you were playing this game, the, the virus was there and it was dormant and it was spreading. So it, was, it would spread itself to other disks that you inserted. Mm -hmm. On the 50th time that you played this, this game on an infected computer, it would actually show a little poem and it would say, Elk Cloner, the program with a personality, it will get on all your disks, it will infiltrate your chips. Yes, it's Cloner. It will stick to you like glue. It will modify RAM too. Send in the Cloner. <laughs> so and that, that was it. That was all that it did. <laughs> it was spread itself and show this little, this little poem. It's so quaint almost. <laughs> yeah. I also wanted to go back to a little detail in there that it was spread through disks. Yes. How did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this this was really in the days before the the internet. I mean not truly because, you know, the bare bones of the internet had started before that point, but nobody had access. So this was before the days of the internet. And what would happen is, you know, when you when you're you've got an Apple II computer, and maybe your friend down the block has an Apple II computer, you're going to be, you know, copying programs onto disks. You know, you might get a program from somewhere. Um, you know, maybe it's a game or something like that. And you make a copy of it onto another disk, and you give that to your friend. And if you're infected with Elk Cloner, well, guess what? That that floppy that you gave to your friend has the virus on it as well. So, yeah, and it was really that, that practice of, of trading software on floppy disks or later on on cartridges. Like I remember when I was a kid, everybody with an Atari would trade their cartridges around. That was really a big thing back in those days because there was no internet. We didn't really have a way to share stuff other than physical media. <laughs> There's a couple of things in there that I think are just important. Number one, right, I think this thing, this this uh, this specificity about, look, yeah, we had the bare bones of the internet, but it's not like, 
it's not like people had the internet, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, for a long time, people still shared media physically. People still went to one another's homes. <laughs> that was a thing. And I also, I think I recall hearing about an early virus that was also propagated through disks and the way that the individual who wrote the virus, the way that he convinced people to put the disks on their computers is that I believe he sent them to research institutions that were specifically researching the AIDS epidemic at the time and saying, hey, I have all this data I found. I'm a doctor. I've done all this research. I want to share it with you because I think we should take a serious look at what's happening, you know, across the United States. And I think it worked. Like, I think it was an extremely early example of social engineering and getting someone to physically open a, a, a physical attachment, if you will. Well, it certainly sounds plausible. I'm not familiar with that story, but it it's absolutely the sort of thing that could have happened. Yeah, I also wanted to go back to something that you said that, you know, when we moved from 9 to OS 10, what I wanted to talk about is that you said the system change, the operating system change, and you use, use the word architecture. And that reminded me that Apple has recently changed its physical architecture. It is now using different chips that run inside its own machines. Uh, instead of relying on Intel chips, it now has things called M1. So the M1 chip, and then there's some, we have some new computers, the M1 Pro, the M1 Max. But what I'm asking here is, is there any effort out there right now to make malware for those chips? Is that even a thing? Does that make sense? You know, once, once you have a new hardware inside your machine, can you write malware for that part? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it has been done. It, it was done very, very early on, as soon as Apple released the first M1 chips. It wasn't long before we saw the first M1 malware. And part of that is because Apple has got a lot of experience with this sort of thing. Back in the early days, the very first Macs ran on Motorola 68K processors. So we call them 68K. It was like 68010 and 68020. But we just abbreviate 68K. And then they transitioned to the PowerPC chips. And then later they transitioned to the Intel chips. And now they've transitioned to the M1 chip. So they've got multiple instances where they have completely changed the entire processor architecture. And they've gotten really good at it. And so at this point, if you are a software developer and you have an app at the time that the M1 chips are coming out and you want to make it M1 native, it could be as easy as checking a box inside of the Xcode compiler and then building your app. And bingo, it's got both native Intel and M1 code in it. And you didn't have to do anything except check a box. Of course, it can get a little bit more complicated than that because your app could be using things that can't as easily be converted straight into native M1. But 
a lot of people were able to just check a box and and that includes the malware authors so that made it really easy to create native m1 malware <laughs> no way i'm i'm sure developers love that and malware developers love that <laughs> yes absolutely i wanted to go into understanding your history with mac computers you've told a lot of stories that seem to show an understanding of of this field for a really long time uh for decades and so what what simply got you into using and researching mac computers yeah so i mentioned i've been using mac since 1984 so i was barely a teenager at the time and as i mentioned my dad was an engineer and we'd always had computers in the house you know always these you know weird command line things made by hewlett packard or epson or companies I don't even remember the name of anymore. And in 1984, my dad brought home from work a Mac 128K, the very first model of Mac. And the instant that I saw it, it was just mind-blowing. You know, I, I was used to these systems that you had to type commands, you had to know the commands, you had to memorize and type them. And you know, maybe at most you might have some function keys you could push that would automatically enter certain commands. Being able to move this mouse thing around and point at things and click on them on the screen and open windows, it was just mind-blowing. Imagine if you were back in the days of the early flip phones, like before you could even do things like play games on a flip phone or send texts on a flip phone, just like the very basic flip phone. And suppose that somebody had handed you an iPhone. Just imagine the mindset there, you know, how, how big of a paradigm shift that would be for you. That's what it felt like when I saw the first Mac. So it was sort of, you know, love at first sight and I've been using them ever since. And as far as researching Macs, so we, we talked about how people tend to say, oh, there's no, there are no Mac viruses. Well, ironically, I actually used to be one of those people <laughs> many, many years ago. I was one of those people. And somebody asked me some questions one time, some very pointed questions. And I was determined to prove this guy wrong. I was like, no, that's, that's not true. You know, so I'm going to go research this and, and I'm going to, I'm going to find all the evidence so that I can show him he's wrong. And no, he was not wrong. There was malware. It was not common. It was fairly rare at the time, but there was quite a bit of it. And that just fascinated me. The fact that all this malicious stuff was out there sort of in hiding, not really in plain view, infecting people. And, you know, the idea of this whole ecosystem of malware and the people behind it just fascinated me. And that really marked my entry into the security field. You know, I got really into it and I, I haven't looked back ever since. I wanted to briefly go back to the fact that the apple that your dad brought home had a mouse was that like huge? Was that insane at the time? Was it the only computer that had it or, or was it very few? What, what was going on there? Yeah, at the time, at least as far as I was concerned, it was the first, you know, no, there were no others. You know, mice did not exist before that point. Mm -hmm. Now, 
technically speaking, that's not entirely true because uh, the idea of a graphical user interface and a mouse actually came out of Xerox. Oh. But so few people ever saw that. Those developments really weren't seen by a, a, a large number of people outside of Xerox. So, you know, as far as at the time, average folks like me who were using computers, but not really that aware of the history there. Yeah, the mouse, that mouse was the first mouse ever, as far as I was concerned. That's so cool. Like, that's the craziest thing. There's how you're saying, right? There was demonstrations of, of mice. I do implore listeners to, if they have the time, if they're at all interested, to look up like a video of that. I saw a video a while ago of this fellow who I guess is at least partly credited with making the mouse, uh, Douglas Engelbart. And there's a demonstration he does, and you can like find it on YouTube, about like what the mouse can do. And there's just, the, it's just, it's insane at the time what this allowed because it it shows what wasn't allowed beforehand. And he does the most mundane things. He's like, I'm going to type out a grocery list and then I'm going to move my cursor to something at the top of the list without touching the keyboard. And that's like, of course you could do that today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's probably hard for younger folks today who have lived with mice all their lives to really understand how just fabulous that was. You know, it was just amazing. Yeah. I think you I think you'd put it really well like imagine you've just used a flip phone and not like a not like a good one, right? But like the first flip phones that we had. And then imagine getting a touch screen, you know, through an iPhone. It's a completely different way to interact with a device and it opens things up in ways that we just couldn't have imagined, you know? Yeah, it sounds like the coolest thing ever. I did want to wrap up here with my last question, which is going back to, hey, Macs are the best. Uh, What do you wish everyone who doesn't use a Mac knew about Macs? So that that's a good question. And I think the thing that really strikes me in particular that I think is is a, a great feature of Macs that's not talked about a lot is the way that all of Apple's various systems and, and hardware are tied so closely together. And it, it makes the systems and the hardware and all the various devices work together so seamlessly. And so just to provide an example that a lot of people don't know you can do, I can go to my computer and I can select some text and I can copy it. And then I can pick up my phone and I can paste it into a note on my phone without doing any, like I just copied it on my computer. I didn't do anything else. And I go paste it on my phone and I can airdrop files between all of my various devices really quickly and easily. And Apple's even adding, coming in in some, we don't know exactly when, but some update to the current Monterey system, you'll even be able to move your cursor between different devices. So I could have my iPad and my computer sitting side by side, and I could move my cursor from one to the other, use my keyboard on the on the iPad for a little while to type something in, move my cursor back over to the Mac and type some stuff in there. And you just can't do that on any other systems. And it comes because 
all of Apple's systems are are so tightly integrated. Everything's made by the same company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard the words that the ecosystem is the reward, and you right you you buy these devices, but the devices work with one another in an ecosystem, and then that's the thing that you actually stay for. Exactly. Yep. Yep. You know, you can uh, you can buy individual laptops and phones and stuff like that, but if it's not Apple devices, it's it's just not going to have that same quality of interaction. Yeah. I recently get it, you know, like I didn't have an iPhone for a really long time and I got one and I'm like, okay, all right, like, fine. (laughs) (laughs) I do, I dramatically miss the customization I had on my Android phones. I, I adored the things you could do, but I can't deny that the things I can do now, I never could do with my old phones. And yeah, it's just a, it's just one of those. You're like, all right, for sure. All right, I get it. Everybody, everybody shut up. Stop saying this. <laughs> like, I get it now. Thomas, I thoroughly enjoyed everything you told us about Macintosh computers and about things that I had no idea were happening years ago. Uh, and so I just wanted to thank you again for coming on today's show. Oh, it was fun. Thank you for having me. To our listeners at home. We'll talk to you again in two weeks. But before telling you about our next episode, I wanted to add onto that vague story about a computer virus spread through floppy disks amongst AIDS researchers. It is a true story. And according to a paper by Palo Alto Networks, it's a story not just about any computer virus, but about reportedly the first ever ransomware attack. It was 1989, and the United States had officially recorded 100,000 AIDS cases in the country. The numbers were startling because of their rapid growth. The first 50,000 AIDS cases in the U.S. were recorded from 1981 to 1987, but the second 50,000 cases were recorded in just 20 months. Against this backdrop, a man named Joseph Pop contacted 20,000 AIDS researchers across 90 countries, saying that he had created a digital questionnaire that could help determine patient risk for contracting AIDS. That questionnaire, Pop claimed, was in the accompanying floppy disk that he had sent in the mail. Scientists fell for the bait. Hidden in the floppy disk was a piece of malware that, after it installed itself, waited for a machine to reboot 90 times, at which point it would hit the user with a warning screen. Their files were locked, the warning screen read, but they could be unlocked for a then so-called licensing fee. Pop didn't make a lot of money from this scheme because one, cybersecurity researchers developed a way to undo the virus's work, And also because, and I'm sorry, it's just funny, but paying the licensing fee back in 1989 required sending it in the mail. I mean, yeah, it wasn't going to work back then. 
Pop was eventually arrested in the United Kingdom, but after being deemed mentally unfit to stand trial, he was moved to the United States, where he remained free until he died in 2007. In our next episode, we will try to get to the bottom of NFTs, or non-fungible tokens. What are they? Why are they fetching millions of dollars on some marketplaces? And who is making the most money from them? Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at www.blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show.